0: thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. Have your Bibles. Go ahead and grab them and and open them to Colossians chapter 2. If you didn't bring one, there is a Bible in the seat back right in front of you. I would love for you to Join us there in Colossians chapter two. That is one of Paul's major letters, um, so it should be kind of like in the middle of the New Testament. Have fun finding it. Um, we just uh, two weeks ago closed out closed out a six pretty six month sermon series, a six month two part sermon series on spiritual transformation and mission, and both of those were designed as kind of like vision for the church, like where where we want to see the church grow and go. Right? It was good, but. Uh, today is going to be different. Today is actually the first sermon in a long time that I'm just preaching from personal conviction. I was like, all right, Lord, what do we need? What do we, like, let's just go there, right? So uh, this isn't just about vision for the church. We're going to dive right into a, a quick three-week sermon series called, can I get a drum roll? Do you guys do that here? You do a drum roll? Huh? It's called Sin. Oh, how fun. Y'all seem really excited about this. The, 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 the overwhelming reaction of enthusiasm is a bit too much for me to take in, okay? So calm down just a little bit, please. Um, sin. So let me talk to you about what's going to, the, the next three weeks are going to look like. Uh, today is called Cancelled Sin. Next Sunday is called Deadly Sins. And then the following Sunday will be called Fighting sin. And I, I, uh, like you, asked the question, uh, why this after a sermon series on growth and on mission? Why sin after transformation and missional living? And ironically enough, I don't think this was accidental that the Lord put this on my heart. Uh, And I think this is the way it connects. It's very obvious, actually. There is a way that our sin... Can both stunt our growth into the image of Christ and render us ineffective for the mission of Christ. Are you swallowing that pill with me? Let me make sure. I'm going to repeat that again. There is a way that our sin will stunt our growth in Christ and render us ineffective in our mission for Christ. I don't know if I need to spend much time arguing that, but if I were drunk, caught in a basement, I wouldn't be able to live on mission for Christ, would I? Or if I were sleeping around with so-and-so for too many, would 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 I be actually participating in God's mission? Absolutely not. There's a way that our sin can stunt our growth and render us ineffective as believers. I mean, even as Christians, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is, all oh, this is those non-believers, right? They won't grow in Christ. They're not even in Christ. It's only us, right? We're in Christ. Even, even as believers, even though you and I are covered by the grace of God, even though God's unconditional love is invincible to our sin, sin will still grunt, stunt our growth and render us ineffective. So, like, 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 we just all have to, I, I hope that we can agree on this. I don't know, if, I hope you know yourself well enough to be able to agree. We still sin. We, oh, yeah, we still, we still sin. Right? I still sin. I've been walking with Jesus for over half of my life. And I've been experiencing his grace again and again, and yet I still find within me this thing called sin. As his grace means that we don't have to fear him because of our sin, right? His grace means that we don't have to fear what he does to sin. No, he condemns sin, but, but I don't want to sin, not because of what I fear my God might do to me. Let me, let me make sure you're saying that. I, I don't fear what God might do to me when I sin, I don't want to sin because I fear what God may refuse to do in and through me because of my sin. Because I, I, I believe it is vastly important for us to go right here to sin and talk about sin for a little bit, for as much as our uncomfortableness can probably handle. Because right after talking about mission and growth, Sin is going to be the only thing that ultimately hinders both of those, right? Think about it. What do you think Jesus meant when he said the gates of hell will not prevail? That's talking about us on mission plundering those things in the darkness and bringing them into the light for the kingdom of God. The the gates of hell cannot hold us back. We're going to plunder Satan's stuff and bring it into God again. So mission won't, it it only, Satan's not going to hinder our mission. Satan's not going to hinder our growth unless we allow him to. Death, think about death, right? That principality and power, whatever that is. Death often serves the mission of God and helps people grow in their image with Christ. Guys, the only thing really now that can hinder our growth and render us ineffective for the mission of God is the sin that still lurks within us? So that's why we go here. It's why next week we're going to talk about what sin is—the deadly sins—and we're going to talk about the week after that how to wage war, how to fight. But today, today I've just got good for news. Good news for you, brothers and sisters. Just good news. Today is all about salvation. Today is all about God's rescue. Today is canceled sin, and here's the premise that we're going to be uh, ultimately getting to after we study God's word. It says this: God cancels the sin, not the sinner. Can we repeat that together? One, two, three. God cancels the sin, not the sinner. That's huge. So you should be in Colossians two by now. Let me give you some context while uh, we're there, just so we're not jumping in at a random spot, not knowing what's going on, guys. We're two chapters in into Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, and so far there's only been two commands. One of them is walk walk with Jesus, walk in Christ Jesus, and the other command is don't let anyone take you captive to uh, by a human philosophy and empty deceit. Only two commands in two chapters. Everything else is talking about how how so grateful Paul is for the church in Colossae. Talks about how he prays for the church. And then there's this massive, beautiful hymn about the supremacy and magnificence of the person of Jesus Christ, about his character and his nature. We talked about that. We studied that uh, several weeks ago. And then there's, then there's this part where, where Paul is expounding on the, the good news of the gospel, right? He's talking about how we have been reconciled back to God. We are presented to God holy and blameless. He says that Christ is now in us, and he is our hope of glory. Amen? Amen. Now, in expounding on this gospel in chapter two, as a reason for not embracing those empty human philosophies and deceits and their ideologies, we get to verse 13, and and that's where we're going to be, 13, 14, with a little bit of 15 sprinkled in. This is the word of the Lord. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ So let's start off with that, uh, uh, that, that one part that just was probably the hardest for us to get through. Started <coughs> off in verse 13. It says, we were what? <laughs> we were dead? Now, obviously, this isn't talking about a physical death. This is talking about a very real spiritual death. And this isn't the only time Paul calls people this way. There's several places, Ephesians 2, others, Colossians 3. There's different places and times. Scripture refers to every human being who is apart from Christ as dead. He also describes those who are in Christ as once dead. So this spiritual death, according to what Paul says here, it's characterized by two things. It says, "We were dead in two things. What were those two things that we were dead in? He says, one, we were dead in our trespasses." and then what? He says, "And in the uncircumcision of our flesh." Now this may have been your first time here at church. Circumcision is a Bible concept. I'm not just throwing it out there. like that's weird, but weird to talk about sometimes in church. So let's talk about the two. trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. trespasses has to do with falling beside. It has to do with falling beyond. Right? So we're not landing where we need to land, we're, we're beside. Uh, so so the, the, Greek, uh, the Greek word for sin uh, was hamarsia, and it's actually an archery term that basically means missed the mark. So if I've, if I've pulled up on an archery and the bullseye is the exit sign, and I miss it by a mile, I've sinned. I've missed the mark. I've fallen beside the mark. That's what trespasses communicate here. We've we've, we've gone beside the standard. And then he talks about the uncircumcision of our flesh. And and he says that we were dead in it. And and what that has to deal with is it's the state of being caught in depravity. It's, It's our spiritual, moral principles being trapped in fallenness what happened in Genesis 3. It's, it's the domination of sin that was once characterizing the throne of our hearts. So ultimately what Paul is doing here is he's doing away with the phrase, oh, I'm generally a good person. I don't, I don't see that anywhere in here. No, it says that we were all Once dead. Guys, general goodness doesn't need to be raised from the dead, does it? We we have to understand that that we can be dead in our trespasses and in the uncircumcision of our flesh. And, And we can vent those. We can vent those fleshly passions by either breaking all the rules or keeping all of them we can vent our fleshly passions by breaking all the rules or we can vent our fleshly passions by keeping all the rules but both ways of venting the flesh still need resurrection guys and this should sound very familiar i'm just quoting gentle and lowly remember that book we gave out for free the author he says we can be immoral dead people or we can be moral dead people either way we're dead And honestly, if, if we could epitomize what that means in the beliefs of our hearts, if we were once dead, meant that we once believed we were better at being God than God is. No matter how ignorant we were of him. That's the epitome of it. I'm better at being God than God is. I am my own God. I don't need anyone else to be my God for me. I don't want another ruler or authority over me. I want to be what I want to be. That's spiritual death. So so it is our trespasses and and our fleshly nature that Paul identifies here as the reason for our spiritual death. Which means it's these things that need to be removed. These needs they need need to be addressed. Our trespasses need to be removed. Uh, We need our flesh to be circumcised or or, uh, the sinful flesh removed if we're ever going to experience life. And one of the things we see is that's exactly what God does. That's what he did. It says, while we were dead. That's actually the connotation here. It says, when you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, he's saying that while we were in that state, while we were dead, while we were in our trespasses and in our flesh, verse 13, God made us alive together with Christ he rose us from the dead Guys, this is literally saying that the mercy of God reaches down into the grave of our sin and depravity not only of those obviously bad people but also those fraudulently good ones he reaches down into their grave and he, and he pulls them out, those who are in desperate need of resurrection, and he raises them up in Jesus. How did he do this? You remember, he had to address both the, the, the trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. And the passage right before this talks about how he circumcised our flesh, right? So, so that's something you can go study on your own. But we're, we're going to press forward into this text because he's addressing the trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ, the latter part of 13, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Having forgiven them. Guys, the the word for forgiven here is actually, it has the Greek word rooted, charis, which is, you Greek people know what? It's grace. It's grace. Forgiven has this element of grace to it. It means to freely give generously. And what's being issued? Pardon. Forgiveness. In some cases, this Greek word was also used to, to, to mean to cancel a debt. Right? So, so we can see examples of, of this word forgiven in Luke 7.21. When Jesus gave sight to a blind man, he granted it to him freely of his own will. We see it later in chapter 7 when Jesus is telling the parable of a moneylender who, who it says... Cancelled the debt of the two who owed him money. Forgiven. Graciously given. Guys, forgiveness is both a generous giving of good gifts and a canceling of the debt owed. It says here, God forgave us our trespasses. And, and just so we're all on the same page here, uh, did he just forgive a few of them? Did he only say, "Oh, I'm only forgiving those that you know of"? Oh, no, no. Actually, did it say that he's only forgiving those uh, that we committed before we came to Christ? Did say that? No. 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 He says, "How many? All. all, all, our trespasses. Every one of them, past, present." And future. All the ways that we have are and will fall short and miss the mark and trespass, every one of them fully, freely, forever, forgiven. All sin we've already committed, and all sin that we have yet to commit, covered by the blood of the Lamb, atoned for, pardoned by Christ. This is is why we don't have to pay penance, as some out there might believe. We make no payment for our sin. Nothing we offer is good enough. God's pardon is already ours because of his son. His pardon stands over all of our sin. How? How did, how did he forgive us our sin? Did, did, did he just say the word and all of a sudden it was just no more? Uh, did, did, did he like just start forgetting that we were wrongdoers? Oh, is that really? Your? No. Look at verse, the end of 13 going into 14. It says, having forgiven us all our trespasses, how? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So I'm preaching from the ESV translation, which translates the verb elaxephio uh, as canceled. Your translations might say erased or, or blotted out. This word was used in the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament Greek, uh, for that that verse in chapter 7 when it says that God wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. And it's also the same word used in Revelation 21 when it says God will wipe away every tear from our eye. As the image here of this word cancelling is the act of like smoothing a surface of a wax-riding tablet for reuse. It's literally where we get our English expression, wipe the slates clean. And in this case, he's wiping something out specific. He's canceling something specific here. A record of debt. It was, it was used specifically for debt certificates written out by the hand of the debtor. So, for example, let's say I needed to borrow some money from my sister here, Yvette, right? And, uh, and I borrowed some money, and, and, and I wrote out what we call what? I-O-U, right? Now, does an I-O-U really stand up in court? Not necessarily. But back in the day, these certificates of debt... These records of debt that I wrote saying, hey, I owe a vet such and such amount of money. They had their place in court. They were legal. They could stand up. They had obligations with them. That's why Paul says, uh, with all of its legal demands, which is actually the Greek word dogma. In other words, there's this certificate of debt, this record of debt, and every sin acts as a transaction. And it creates a debt against the covenant that we agreed to with God. Now, I do want to take a minute to just get us all on the same level in this. I don't I hope that you guys feel love in this, not like condemnation. But I I do want us to get all on the same page of understanding just how great our individual debts are, or were. Ultimately, I'm hoping that nobody walks out of here thinking, oh yeah, I'm pretty good. So typically, when we look at sin, when we think of it, what do we look at? We look at the outward expressions of it, right? We look at, um, well, I didn't murder anybody, 99% of Americans haven't murdered people. So yeah, great, you're good. Well, I haven't slept with so-and-so, okay? um, and, And I haven't stolen this, I haven't stolen that, I haven't really stolen anything, okay? So what we do is we put sin on the outward, on the outside. And that's what we gauge our goodness at. As the Pharisees did the same thing and they stood condemned before a holy God. In in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he does something. He says it, it specifically about two concepts, but he's describing the whole nature of the law. He says, you have heard it said to our ancestors that do not murder. Okay? But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Or he also says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say unto you, everyone who looks at another lustfully has already committed adultery with him or her in his heart. So this means that the law is designed to take into account not just simply what's expressed visibly, but what's going on internally. What's going on in our hearts. The goodness there or the lack of it. So our record of debt that Paul's referring to here is taking into account my heart, not just our external behavior. So, so if I were to, like, for some reason, let's say the technology, uh, you guys see what's coming out with Facebook, like the metaverse thing, right? What if they got the technology to be able to record your life 24-7? And not only like, see what's on the outside, but as sub-captioning, be able to, 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 to do those little asterisk things and say, feeling really angry, like as a subcaption, caption or, or thinking this in their thoughts. Like, what if we had the technology to do that, and then we got a video of you this past week with all of that entailed and just plastered it up on the screen and said, hey, everybody watch. Would you squirm? I know I'd be terrified. Because I know, at least in a little bit, of what's going on in my own heart sometimes. And it terrifies me. If, if it could capture every envious thought, every gossipy word, every lazy intention, every selfish desire, every lustful memory. Guys, all of that, you wrote out on your certificate of debt. You may not have realized It all counts. It all counts as debt recorded on this record, and we've written it with our own hands. And this record of debt is crying out for payment. With all of its legal demands, it's crying out for payment. It has the legal weight to condemn us, which is why Paul says it stood against us, it was opposed to us. It was crying out for us to pay a debt that we never really could. And yet God has a better word here. Cancel. Wipe the slate clean. The debt is gone. How? Look at verse 14. He says, this record of debt he set aside The word set aside literally means he took away or he took up. You remember, you know how if you go out to a restaurant and maybe even when you were dating, right? You were dating and you were playing that game of who pays the bill at the end. Is it the girl or the boy? You're like, no, no, I'll pay it. No, I'll pay it. No. Well, let's say you're in that restaurant and the bill comes and you pull out your wallet. You can't pay it at all. You got no cent to your name and that debt is huge. Some stranger comes in. He sets it aside. He takes it up and says, I'll cover it. Look at verse 14. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So when, when Romans hung a condemned criminal on a cross as punishment for crime, you know this, they would always affix what was called a titulus above the condemned criminal. I'm not talking about a golf club or a golf ball, you golf junkies. A titulus listed uh, uh, the capital crimes that had been committed by the individual indicating why the person had been crucified, explaining why they deserved to hang there, why they were paying the debt the offense described. So we know what Jesus' title is read. What did it say? What did it say? King King of the Jews. Which meant that they were crucifying Jesus because he was treasonously claiming an authority that in their view properly belonged to their Caesar. No, Caesar's king of the Jews, not this man. But what Paul is saying here is that God took our record of debt, our titulus of the charges, listing all of our wrongdoing, everything that showed why we deserve to stand condemned, and he took our charges and he nailed them to his son's cross. God, God charged his own son with our trespasses on the cross. Because what, what you and I were legally obligated to pay and couldn't, the Father, Son, and Spirit willfully, joyfully paid in full through Jesus' death on the cross. Our record of debt Wiped clean. Jesus condemned in our place. And in this way, God's perfect justice and mercy combine to devise a way to uphold the law as a good standard, a divine standard, and yet pardon the sinner, the transgressor. God condemned sin in Jesus, and he set the believer free from his debt, fully, freely in forever. Just cancel it. Guys, I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you. It, it, it would be an unfortunate thing for the results of a political election that happened earlier this week to get more of an re- emotional response in our hearts than the fact that our debt has been paid before holy God. As God took the record of all of our sin, all of our sexual failures, all of our wanderings off into pride and our selfishness, all of our broken habits and our gluttony he took all of our outbursts of rage which this is not one by the way and he took all of our hidden anger he took all of our malice, all of our drunkenness all of our addictions and every form of idolatry, everything that made us a debtor and instead of holding them up in front of our faces and saying hey this is why you deserve to stand condemned, no he took them away from us and he put them on the cross of his own son and we no longer bear them. Yes, hallelujah. God put all of those charges on his own son. He nailed them to the cross for it as a payment and poured out all of his wrath on his son mm-hmm. so, that, so that people like you and me could just be forgiven so that we could go free. Our debt canceled. Our trespasses forgiven. Guys, this, this is what lies at the very heart of our reconciliation back to our Holy Father in Heaven. And, and the amazing thing is that this isn't limited to a certain gender or a certain ethnic group. It's not limited to a certain economic status. It's not limited uh, or, or it doesn't exclude those who have a certain kind of past. This is available for everyone. This is for both the obviously bad and the fraudulently good. Come and receive Jesus. Guys, we we sing the hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. I don't know if I can get it out right now. Charles Wesley wrote it. That verse, he says, it says this. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Sing it with me, please. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. Amen? amen? He breaks the power of canceled sin. Yes, amen. Our sin is canceled. And so what, what I'm about to say, and I, I recognize the time. Some things have gone much longer than expected. But what I'm about to say starts out with a, a phenomenon that's going on out in our culture around us. And, and then it's gonna, I'm going to try to bring it in very personally for us individually. What I'm about to say isn't meant to comment on anything politically happening. It's not meant to comment on whether it's right or it's wrong. So hear me out when I say this. But it has to do with what sociologists and researchers describe as cancel culture. No matter what side of the aisle you fall on, it is a legitimate thing. Okay, it's happening. First and foremost, cancel culture is punitive when it comes to issues of race and gender and sexuality and other, uh, other related topics. And it basically holds that certain transgressions must be punished no matter how long ago they occurred. They have to be punished. Cancel culture is unforgiving. It's, it's unforgiving. So, so, so what happens when it enacts its Justice. The, the individual himself or herself gets canceled. That's the verb that's being used. But basically it means that they're erased from any prominent public platform or career, bullied into society's margins, capable or, or incapable of being forgiven for what they've done. So, uh, uh, for example, an Alabama governor was called to resign because she wore blackface in a college skit 52 years ago. Again... I'm not trying to comment on whether it's right or wrong. I'm just noting the fact. A a trustee at a Gettysburg college was forced out for wearing a fake Nazi uniform to a Hogan's Heroes-themed costume party in 1980 when he was a college student, even though he already profusely apologized and never did anything else, showing any kind of racist tendencies in his heart. In In other words, cancel culture. What's happening out in the world right now in our society, is the belief that you are no better than your worst moment. No matter how young you were when you transgressed, or even if it's just an isolated event, basically, the culture around us is shouting, you are your worst failure. Is this, this, is, this is the air around us right now. This is the air that people around us in the world are breathing in right now. But is this the air that we breathe? Absolutely not. This is not our gospel. Our gospel, according to this passage, says that for those who are in Christ, God cancels their sin, not them. God cancels the sin, not the sinner. God has made a way so that those who trust alone in Jesus aren't their worst failures. That their lives aren't defined by their biggest mistakes and wandering off. No, their worst failures are actually taken away from them and condemned in Jesus. Romans 8.3 says, By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, as believers, we don't get condemned. We don't get canceled. We get forgiven. We get raised to walk in new life. As Even as believers, even though we have will and continue will to struggle with sin... Guys, there will never come a day when, when God has said, all right, enough. I'm done with you. There will never be a day when God decides, oh, I'm gonna wipe you out. Guys, we, there, can, there can be a place where believers go and it's not healthy but it's, it's into this place where you kind of just believe that God's begrudgingly tolerating you. He's just kind of holding out, but he's, he's kind of staying with you for a little bit, but it annoys him, right? And we, we can get in that place because we see the sin that we're continually going back to. Guys, there, there may be a time when you start getting really mad at yourself because, you, I don't know, you, you you keep looking at porn or you're too easily angry at the people that you want to really love well or, or whatever shortcoming you see in yourself. You may be mad at yourself. You may wander off into hating yourself because you went and did that sinful thing that you said and swore to God that you would never do again. Guys, if 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 we as a gospel people find a way to exclude those obviously bad people or those fraudulently good ones. If we find a way where someone's sin has done enough where we just cast them out and cast them aside and say they're, they're irrelevant, they're not a part of our body, they're not a part of our lives anymore. If we find a way where we get there then what we're doing is the equivalent of hating the person who has cancer in them and not hating the cancer in the person. You understand how different that is? Cancer is the infection. The person is the image bearer of God. No matter how cancerous they may be. God cancels the cancer within us. He cancels the sin within us. In other words, as we relate to one another, your sin, whether it's against me or against others, ought not limit me in my love for you and in my affection and my drawing near to you. If it does, then I am I am excluding you because of your sin. No, no, no. We aren't our sin. We aren't our failures in Christ anymore. In Christ, we're new creatures. In Christ, we have a different identity. And this ought to help mark how we love one another in the body of Christ. Now, now does this mean that, that we can just run off and do whatever we want freely, right? Oh, they're going to forgive me. I'm fine. No, no. This does not issue a license to just go do whatever. Does this mean that we don't believe in church discipline? No, we we affirm what Jesus says about church discipline, that it's designed to hold people accountable to the good word of God, but the person isn't canceled. They're still loved. They're still important. They're still valuable. They're they're loved in the hopes of healing and restoration. The world just casts them out and wants nothing more to do with them. No, we say, no, we have future hopes for you. We want to see you come back. So in no place, for those who are in Christ, should there ever be a day when we cancel the sinner, when we exclude them, because that is not the gospel that God has graciously shown us. No, in God, we get to experience full acceptance, freedom, and forgiveness because of Jesus. God cancels the sin, not the sinner. And that's the offer that's on the table of the covenant of the gospel. It's what's available. And my hope and my prayer is that this gospel would define or redefine our relationship with God and our relationship with one another in the air that we breathe here. That every soul would be as valuable as God sees them. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesborofm.com.